0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm Keith Rathbun. I'm coming to you from Macquarie University, and I'm here today with Greg Bochetti, the author of The Invention of the Beautiful Game, Football and the Making of Modern Brazil. Uh, Greg is a professor of history, uh, and he teaches at Transylvania University in Lexington. And his book, The Invention of the Beautiful Game, came out with University Press of Florida in 2016 in hardback. But it's out this year in paperback, so now is the time to pick it up. Thank you very much for joining me, Greg.
1: Thanks very much, Keith. I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
0: I have to tell you, um, this book, Greg, was very close to my own interests. so I was reading it with uh, much fascination, and it, it exceeded my expectations. I was so thrilled with uh, with everything you have to say and in the parallels between some of your work and my own. but. Uh, For those people who haven't yet read the book, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you developed this project. How did you come to write about the invention of the beautiful game?
1: Well, as a lot of these things do, um, what's now the book began as part of a much larger project. um, And that project was aimed... Partly at Brazil, but mostly at understanding why sports, uh, modern sports, uh, spread in the ways they did into the region. And by the region, I mean Latin America, but also the Caribbean. Um, And I was interested in baseball and football, uh, or as American listeners will think, uh, soccer. Uh, And I was also interested in cricket, uh, because it was once upon a time I was interested in the uh, uh, English-speaking Caribbean and, but as I got more into the Brazil side of the project, the more of a Brazilianist I became, and the more dedicated I became in my own mind to studying and understanding Brazil. And what I kept noticing in my work on Brazil um, and using football to understand Brazil was that I kept noticing the same stories about Brazilian football, the same narratives, and even the same sources being cited by everyone who wrote about it and who talked about it, those sources were often memoirs uh, rather than contemporaneous primary sources. And so they were based on personal recollections or on recollections of recollections, not on newspaper accounts, magazine accounts, uh, club documents, confederation documents. and. When I started looking at those sources, the sources from the football clubs and from uh, even the cricket clubs and clubs that have gone out of existence as sports entities but continue as social clubs, and as I looked at newspaper articles and magazine articles, what I kept seeing were tensions with the traditional narrative of Brazilian football. and. That made me want to write a book about those narratives, and made me want to write a book about how Brazil has used football to tell a story about itself to itself, but also to others. And after many iterations of trying to figure all of this out, what I came to understand was that those original narratives that I had been reading were really forms of myth-making that the history of Brazilian football as told by most people and as understood by most people, including by most Brazilians, was really just a series of myths that served a variety of uh of ends, some personal, some uh political, uh, often structural and, and in terms of power. Um and I wanted to understand why that happened and to try to uncover a little bit about what that was covering up.
0: Well I, I think in reading your book that you do set out a very strong case against what I understood to be the history of football in Brazil. Uh, but maybe you can spell out for us, what is the myth of Brazilian football? Um, especially, uh, as it, as it stands before the second world war and how does your book, um, differ from that myth? What is, how's is your story different?
1: So one of the early titles of my book uh, that uh, fortunately I was forced to change because I fell in love with the title but then realized later that it actually wasn't a very good title because it didn't tell the story I wanted to tell. One of the early titles was From Football to Foochie Ball, Um, and football is the way that – People in the English-speaking world outside of the United States tend to call the sport, uh, unless you're the socceroos. Um, And uh, (laughs) that's how people in Brazil uh, called it. They even had rules in their uh, leagues that we will call the game football. We will use the word corner kick. We'll use the word um, referee. And the word futebol is simply a Brazilianization of the pronunciation of that English word. And so the original version and the most popular version of the history of Brazilian football is that it went from football to futebol, meaning something that was English and that was imported, and along with that was very wealthy, very white, very privileged, and that it became, uh, through the power of Brazilian nationalism, through the... Uh, passion Brazilians had for the game. Uh, it became something Brazilian that they call foochie And that it's really a story of celebration, of taking something foreign and making it national, taking something uh, exclusive and making it democratic and popularizing it and making it a game for all Brazilians. But of course, like many modern sports, it's much more than a game. And therefore, it would stand in for uh, everything that Brazilians wanted to make their country, which uh, one of the classic myths of Brazil is that it's a racial democracy. Uh, And the idea that because we have um, people of color who are representing Brazil at the very highest levels, most famously Pele and other Afro-Brazilian football players, who are tend to be the most famous Brazilians in the world, that that was proof that Brazil had not only, profe- uh, not only uh, made this game their own, but also that they had democratized it, both from a racial and from a class point of view. And what I realized was that that story is true to a certain extent. Certainly, Pelé exists, and many of the best Brazilian players are players of color. Um, and that uh, and it certainly is a national passion or it has been in the past and continues to be for many people today, um, but that it also covers up quite a bit. And one of the things that it covers up most clearly is that it's not a, uh, institutionally a democratic uh, culture, a democratic sport. Uh, the culture of football in Brazil has many of the marks of the exclusivity uh, of the past. And the other thing that I realized, and this was probably what I came to realize even later, was that those early Eurocentric exclusivist uh, importers of football, uh, as they said, it, even with a dash in between the words foot and ball, uh, they weren't nearly as exclusive uh, as they seemed to be. Uh, And so I wanted to see... How they were being ill-served as well by the uh, myth-making that has surrounded the game. So we're
0: upending the the history of of soccer, of, of futebol, football as as representative of some kind of Brazilian uh, racial democracy. I imagine this the thesis doesn't always go over so well in Brazil.
1: <laughs> it doesn't. One of the things that I realized was that. When I first started working on the project, there were very few uh, treatments that really um, dealt took football seriously. Uh, people uh, took it seriously in the sense that it's big business, that it's a, a passion. But they didn't really take it seriously as a subject of study of something that needed to be understood and needed to be understood the way a historian would want to understand it, which is by going to the sources instead of hearing um, the stories. The stories are important, but the sources uh, can help uh, us understand the stories. And what I'll say is that now, many, many years later, because it took a really long time for me to complete the book and get it out... um, that the historiography of Brazilian uh, football in Brazil has become much more uh, rigorous. Uh, there are, are literally dozens of great articles and books um, now about Brazilian football um, produced by Brazilians in Brazil. Um, and um, sports in general have really been embraced by the Brazilian academy as something that needs to be taken seriously. When I started working on the project um, back all the way back a, a, at the turn of this century in 2000, um, there were maybe one or two uh, projects that I would say were, took the the the, the 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 subject really seriously, and I learned a lot from those scholars. Um, but there were very few of those, and there really were were none um, in. Uh, in English. There were a handful of people who had taken the subject seriously in sociology and anthropology, but uh, there really wasn't a history of Brazilian uh, football written in English. Uh, and I wanted to try to do my part in, in making the historiography of Brazilian football more rigorous. Just a couple more
0: questions before we kind of turn to to your chapters themselves. What, one of the things that I think your work does really well is it gets into the the clubs themselves. And often I think when I read sports histories, we see sports uh, as depicted from the top. So what is the government trying to do? or Or from the side, what is the newspaper saying about sports, which can often be very different from what sportsmen are doing or saying? Or, or through memoir, as you say, and unfortunately, sportsmen seem to be not a very loquacious bunch, at least in the interwar period, in my experience. Um, how, how how does looking at the clubs themselves change our view of what sports was like in this period in Brazil? And, and 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 from a practical standpoint, was it hard to get into these clubs' archives? Sometimes I found it difficult to do things like that.
1: Uh, it, it it can be hard. I've had some. Um, run-ins with, uh, with um, unfriendly people and, and wild animals, um, but um, it <laughs> also, that's true, but also it was the most rewarding part of the project, both from a substantive point of view. I used the club documents uh, really uh, intensely in order to try to develop my understanding of what the history was, but also from a the point of view of understanding brazil as an outsider and as a, a scholar because i had to see parts of the cities that i was studying that historians just simply don't normally don't go to um so that um sometimes it's very difficult to get into them um but uh, i felt like it was um absolutely um essential to do so one of the challenges with going with working in in the clubs but also in the confederação brasileira de futebol which is the um uh, football's uh, governing body the cbf it's the organization that uh that puts out the um, brazilian national team the seleção is that <clears throat> often they're they're happy for you to visit um but they either don't know what to do with you because you are an outsider looking into uh, their ancient what they consider their ancient history and they're busy trying to put on a football match on Saturday um, or what they want to do is uh, have a friendly ear that will help export their view of themselves as a heroic and community oriented organization um, that that um, will tell the world just how wonderful uh, Flamengo is or uh, Vasco da Gama is. And so um, oftentimes what you have to do is be really insistent, um, uh, try very hard to be your, as charming as you could possibly be, which for me is often difficult, um, and, um, and to just sort of hope that you'll find the right friendly person. I'll tell one quick story about that. Um, Every uh, scholar who I met when I was doing my original research uh, in Sao Paulo told me that I wouldn't get to see the documents from the club that's now called Palmaris, but in uh, its original iteration was called Palestra Italia. And this was a club organized by Italian immigrants to Sao Paulo in the early 20th century and um, still carries with it a very strong Italian uh, identity and a, a sense of itself and changed its name during World War II uh, at the behest of the federal government of Brazil uh, led by Getulio Vargas who uh, forced all uh, what he called or what his, uh, his administration called foreign entities to Brazilianize themselves which meant that uh, schools Newspapers, magazines, clubs uh, that catered to uh, foreign, uh, foreign immigrant communities, especially those associated with the Axis powers, would have to nationalize themselves so that they could be surveilled by the Brazilian government more effectively. So not only did Palestra Italia become Palmeiras, but it also had to produce its internal documents in Portuguese so the government could have a look if it wanted to. And it had in the past produced those documents in Italian. And all of the scholars who I knew who studied uh, Brazilian football said, you're not going to get into Palmeiras because they're uh, hiding uh, evidence that the club was used as a, a mouthpiece for Mussolini and the Italian fascists among the Italian immigrants to Brazil. And... So I went to the club, uh, I think three times before I even got into the door and, uh, used my Italian, um, background. Um, my is Italian, Italian American, um, as a way to try to get my way in the door. What I realized was that it wasn't so much that the, uh, people that I talked to were trying to bury a, a history of, uh, Of uh, an affinity for uh, fascism which was there in the documents and um, clearly the club was being used by the Italian diplomats in Sao Paulo to try to promote fascism among the Italian immigrants in Brazil but it's that they didn't that the current bureaucrats uh, in back in 2000 and 2001 uh, didn't read Italian and didn't understand what the documents said and so once I was in and was able to work with those documents. Um, and they saw that I was a, a serious person who wouldn't, um, abuse their, uh, ancient artifacts. Um, they seemed pretty comfortable with having me there. Um, I'm not, I don't have a way of knowing, uh, how well received my news that they were, uh, that there, that there were uh, members of the club who were, um, had an affinity for fascism, how that would go well over with them because I haven't been in touch with them. But I don't. Uh, it really just took a lot of patience and quite a lot of luck. And that happened at pretty much every club I went to. There are a couple of clubs in Brazil that uh, have uh, archives that are open to uh, scholars, but most of them are uh, pretty wary of outsiders. And they are still running, they, they function as social clubs, but they're running high-end professional sports teams and they don't necessarily want you digging around in their, in their own history.
0: I, I, that's that experience of yours resonates really with my own as well in France, where people told me, don't even bother trying to go to the clubs. Um, they're going to stonewall you. It's hard to get in. You have to know someone and they're all hiding, you know, that they collaborated. <laughs> right, And my my experience was once you actually got in the door, the people who, um, either completely just left you alone in, in the back of some storage closet that didn't have enough light and said, go for it. Look at everything. I don't care. Or they were actually strangely helpful. Like, Oh, were you looking for this document
1: about collaboration? I've never
0: seen this, but this is interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, that and, and that kind of thing happened to me as well. And, you know, I, I had one, uh, one experience where I went to a club several times and each time I was passed along to a different person. And finally I had seen what I thought I could see, which was really just club produced histories, no actual primary uh, source documents and was standing saying my goodbyes. And I said, Oh, what's that book that's on the bottom of that bookshelf over there? And they said, Oh, that's nothing. That's just some old paper and it happened to be uh the original minutes of the meetings of the directory of the club from the early 20th century which was exactly what i was looking for and the the folks who were who were working there were happy to let me see it but they didn't consider it anything important and so that's not their job and so they didn't really necessarily know why i would want to see what i wanted to see and they were just friendly and i had to be patient
0: i um but I'd love to chat about just the archive experience the whole time, but I think probably other listeners want to hear more about the book itself. Your book has a very interesting organization. Um, you, you didn't go just strictly chronologically. You actually worked through more thematically your early, just your first chapter thinking about the role of sport in Brazilian society. Um, your next chapter about the building of, of, uh, sporting clubs and then international football then thinking about gender and emotion and respectability and finally this invention of the ojo ojogo bonito the beautiful game i probably am butchering that pronunciation by the way apologies to portuguese speakers um but i thought that was a really interesting interesting organization i'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about that while you're talking through some of the chapters and maybe let's start with the first chapter and the um the kind of exportation of, of European sports to Brazil. So what was sport like in 20 early 20th century Brazil or late 19th century Brazil? Why does it, why do European sports become popular and who is this figure of the, of the sportsman who is, I guess, a kind of prototype for an athletic citizen in some ways?
1: Yeah. So um, the first chapter is a really good example. Why, I, uh, adopted the thematic approach. Uh, one of the things I really wanted to do was to, um, observe the ways in which, um, things didn't change over time. And of course they did change over time. Uh, lots changed, but lots didn't. And one of the things I really wanted to focus on was what didn't change. And, so in the first chapter, I really think of the first chapter as as a, an introduction to the ideology of sports. Why did people want to play these sports? What's the point of taking a, uh, a sport and a pastime that's uh, was developed by uh, Englishmen and bringing it to Brazil, which is, is so different in so many ways? And what I, I realized was that um, it was very much of a piece with a much larger nation building project that the, um, uh, Brazilian middle and upper classes were engaged in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which was a project of improvement. Brazil, uh, ab- Brazilians abolished their, uh, um, abolished slavery in 1888 and, uh, abolished its imperial governmental structure and replaced it with a republic in 1889. And those two uh, important um, actions were accompanied by a spirit of an attempt at renewal. And many uh, Brazilians believed that sports, uh, along with any number of other um, cultural, economic, and um, social changes, could help renovate the country, which they believed had a lot of potential, but that the empire and slavery, and uh, given the time that they were uh, living in, uh, they believed race and climate had had, uh, kept Brazil from developing. And so they were looking for opportunities to try to make Brazil the great nation that they believed it was destined to be. And what they saw was that the countries that they most admired in the world practiced these modern sports. And that was really difficult to, uh, to convince many Brazilians of because many Brazilians associated athletics with uh, hard work and hard work with slavery. And so the uh, prototypical upper and upper middle class Brazilian was someone who wrote poetry, um, was very well educated and would never, ever sweat. Um, but in order to make Brazil the country that these improvers wanted to make it, they tried to bring in uh, cultural and social markers and activities from the developed countries that they believed would make Brazil a better place. And sports was a way to do that, they believed. Um, they thought that sports would make Brazilian um, uh, Brazilian people into good citizens who understood rules and uh, accepted authority, uh, good workers who would h- work hard and uh, develop uh, resilience, and good soldiers, um, because they were very fond of the um, of the saying that's often attributed uh, to um, Wellington. Um, I think I think incorrectly that uh, Waterloo was won um, on the playing fields of Eton and Harrow. Uh, the English public schools and so they didn't didn't just import sports they imported a very particular version of sports which was associated with uh, amateurism uh, and uh, an athletic ideal of um, using sports to promote gentlemanliness um, uh, gentlewomanliness uh, respectability um, but also hard work competitiveness and many other uh, uh, ideas that, that they associated with, um, with, uh, France, England and the United States, especially among others. Um, and so they really believed that football and other sports could help them renew the nation, but they believed that there was a very particular version of sports that would help do that. Not just any, not just play, but organized sports. And, and
0: eventually of course, uh, we know Brazil becomes the football nation par excellence. I'm, everybody football mad, of course. But why football? I mean, it didn't seem at the time self evident that football was going to be the sport, right? There were other possibilities. How does football become preeminent where others fail?
1: Yeah, there are many other possibilities. Many of the first, uh, many of the first football clubs or clubs that became football clubs. Um, and uh, continue to be some of the, lar- some of the biggest um, athletic organizations in the entire nation, uh, started out as either cricket clubs or um, uh, rowing clubs. So Flamengo, which is the biggest and most popular uh, club in Brazil, started as a rowing club, and it's still in its uh, title. It's called the Clube de Regatas uh, do Flamengo, which just means the Flamengo Neighborhood Regatas Club. Um, and so there were a lot of possibilities and I think that football became, uh, the most popular, uh, sport in, in Brazil and the most popular pastime in, in Brazil, um, for a variety of reasons. One thing I try not to forget is that it's a great game and people enjoyed playing it. Um, I I think that there are a lot of great games and people enjoy doing a lot of things. So that can't be the only reason, but I, it's the one thing I try to remind myself and my students is that. Uh, we can take these um, athletic pursuits seriously and try to understand them, but we also have to understand, remember that they are fun. Um, and but I, I also think that um, football um, offers certain um, uh, options that other other pastimes don't. Well, first of all, um, it was going to have to be something English. Uh, the English uh, were the single most uh, influential uh, group. Uh, foreign group in Brazil, uh, economically, politically, ideologically uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. um, Soccer arrived in Brazil during what uh, scholars call Brazil's uh, century of British preeminence. Uh, And so it wasn't going to be baseball, um, so it would have to be something uh, British. Uh, Second, unlike say, rowing, um, football has a very low bar for entry in terms of, uh, in terms of rules and in terms of uh, gear. Um, you can play football pretty uh, cheaply, uh, and so it can spread pretty rapidly. And it also is a, a pretty elegantly simple game without the myriad thousand rules of, say, American football. Um, and then, unlike uh, individual sports... Uh, say uh, tennis um, it promoted teamwork which is one of the things that uh, Brazilians most most were looking for in their athletic pursuits because they believed it would help make for better citizens workers and soldiers and so um, it there were many people who were very dubious about football and actually considered it too violent or too foreign um, but um, I think football um, uh, flourished in Brazil for for Several reasons, uh, many of them having to do with the particular um, cultural nexus of of a uh, an admiration for for Great Britain uh, and uh, the what it uh, purports to offer in terms of teamwork uh, and um, and improvement.
0: And I think,
1: uh, at
0: least from my reading of your book, um, you know, one of the other major factors, of course, which you highlight is. The role of the clubs themselves i mean this this importation of the athletic citizen was not something that was being done at the behest of the republican state alone or even maybe primarily like a lot of this was coming from the clubs themselves and from influential um kind of elite sportsmen right so what's going on with the clubs and what's their role in all of this
1: that's right. The, 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 government, uh, the government of Brazil did a handful of things to help encourage uh, the spread of sports, for example, by, um, by uh, making sports equipment um, uh, tariff-free um, and helping um, sportsmen uh, get access to resources that they might need. For example, Brazil's first stadium Uh, was built uh, using a loan from uh, the Banco do Brasil, which is the uh, national bank, and also um, uh, required uh, kind of a sweetheart deal with the city of Rio de Janeiro in order to get some of the geographic, uh, uh, geographic needs for the stadium to be built, for example, adjacent streets to the club, which is Fluminense. Um, but really, most of the of the yeoman's work of promoting football and organizing football was done by uh, a few handfuls of um, well-educated middle and upper middle class and upper class uh, Brazilians, especially in the cities. Um, and uh, this was for them a, a passion project f- for a variety of reasons, partly because they believed it would help uh, in, uh, improve the country partly because they enjoyed being members of clubs, partly because it helped promote their own social standing, uh, and they also saw the clubs uh, quite rightly, I think, as uh, as a way to to control uh, the development of the culture. Um, as I said earlier, they were very intent that people don't just play; they play sport in the way that it was meant to be played and they meant by that they meant the kind of Corinthian ideal coming from uh, Great Britain um, of amateurism and gentlemanliness Um, and uh, they knew that if they just encouraged people to play that they wouldn't be able to control what that play looked like and so the clubs helped them control entry both onto the field and to the grandstand the clubs helped them control uh, rulemaking, uh, helped them control um, what would be required as far as facilities were, uh, were concerned, uh, would help control against whom we play, um, with whom we play, um, who we make connections with in foreign climes, and so on. And so the clubs were a very convenient uh, set of institutions that allowed for the control of the sports culture. Because the clubs organized the leagues and the leagues organized the governing bodies and the governing bodies decided on the national team. And so the clubs were uh, uh, an urgent necessity if you wanted to control uh, or at a minimum uh, shape the sports community. And so they built that society very deliberately in order to maintain as much of that uh, influence as they could.
0: And it's all really for me at least what goes back to what you're saying earlier about how in some respect um, this this myth making about Brazilian football has elided the long influence of these elites within these club institutions and because they control the clubs, they control the, the organizing bodies and because they control the organizing bodies. Um, you know they have a stranglehold over this so-so. and again, I'm butchering every Portuguese word I would try <laughs> to pronounce. Um, but at the same time, your work really also shows how people could contest these club boundaries as well, and how it was always kind of in flux. I, one of the things that struck me as a non-Brazilianist, and I'm sure as a as a Latin Americanist, this is very obvious to you, was this debate over who who was a who was a Brazilian club, a national club, who wasn't. In, in some ways, having English or, or, or more upper crust um, uh, uh, feeling to your club made you somehow more authentically Brazilian. And, and then clubs like Vasco da Gama, because they were too Portuguese, were foreign. And <laughs> it was just reading through the, the, the kind of intricacies of these club hierarchies and how they could be contested. But then always coming back also to the, the game itself, that having a successful team could, could um, propel your club into levels above maybe your social
1: standing might dictate. Right. Right. And, and, and the clubs and the clubs really do show a a, a, a central part of my thesis, because, um, you know, one of the things that the mythology of Brazilian sports says is that if you look at the early 20th century, all you see is upper class white men running around in the fields. And if you look at the 1930s and 40s, the best players are Afro-Brazilians who came from the working class. And that's absolutely true. But the real question for me was, okay, but how, how did that change given the fact that the administrators, the coaches, uh, the sports writers were basically the same people. And in fact, sometimes the exact same people um, and So just because, say, for example, Leonardo da Silva, the footballer called the Black Diamond, who was the leading um, goal scorer in the 1938 World Cup, um, was uh, from uh, a modest background and was Afro-Brazilian, just because he was kind of the, the hero of the masses in the 1930s, doesn't mean that the actual organization or the structure of the clubs changed. If you take a club like Fluminense, which began very deliberately as an attempt to make a Brazilian version of an uh, English amateur club, um, and was governed by a, uh, very closely by a family uh, called the Guinle family, um, this is one of the most uh, powerful and wealthy families in Rio de Janeiro, which was then the capital of Brazil. And the Gimli family had obtained a lot of influence over Fluminense by helping build uh, the club's first uh, first uh, seat and its first grandstands and then overseeing its uh, stadium development. Um, and the Gimli family also helped professionalize the game and helped bring Afro-Brazilian players in after a very long period of resistance to letting those players in. And what uh, they seem to have realized was that the popularization of the game wasn't going to be able to be resisted, and so the popularization of the game would have to be um, controlled. And so we, the administrators, can maintain our own control over the game and therefore discipline players who disappoint us, who don't do what we'd like them to do, fire coaches we don't want, uh, who, who don't do as we'd like them to do, um, as long as we control uh, the entry into the game, we can go ahead and allow a certain level of professionalization and popularization. But as you say, there was also an extent to which uh, football success could help breed uh, acceptance, uh, not only for individual players, but also for entire communities. The uh, Palestra Italia Club that I was talking about uh, earlier uh, was one of those the uh, Italian community in Sao Paulo was uh, very large in the 19 teens and 20s and so it made sense for them to have their own uh, sports team that would allow them to kind of promote the community's interests at a wider level because most of the Italian community of Sao Paulo was uh, in the uh, working class especially in um, in the city's uh, early industrialization. But there were a handful of Italian immigrants uh, with some money, and they helped organize the club. And having Palestra Italia be a team that went out and won games and participated in uh, Brazilian football was a way of not only maintaining an Italian identity in Sao Paulo, but also of helping that community gain a certain amount of respect and agency inside of the larger uh, Sao Paulo culture. And, and in your third chapter, you
0: kind of expand that same dynamic to the international realm and, and you trace out, I think very well, um, how the kind of maybe sportsman model doesn't persist in international competition because there's a sense that what, what actually, we're better <laughs> than, than these supposed model that we see overseas that we're meant to be copying. Can you talk a little bit about um, international football um, in, in, in the interwar period?
1: Sure. And so the seleção, which is the what Brazilians call their national team, which just means the select team, um, very clearly shows on a superficial level Um, the change that the um, legendary version of Brazilian soccer history wants to tell. If you look at the first versions of the Seleção, what you see is upper-class white men uh, who are um, very well-educated. They're often depicted in the press, not in football uniforms, but in tuxedos, um, because they're going to be our diplomats of uh, showing that we are a uh, modern country that uh, has modern pastimes, and to use football as a way of presenting Brazil uh, in an idealized uh, in an idealized way. Uh, the we talked earlier about the extent to which government was involved and government was often not involved. But there is an example from my that chapter. Uh, that uh, I often uh, think about when I think about um, this idea of presenting a particular face to the world. As Hobsbawm says, uh, it's sometimes easier to imagine a nation of millions uh, in the form of 11 uh, named athletes. And the federal government in uh, 1919 wanted uh, Brazil to be well represented at the South American Championships. And so told the confederação brasileira de futebol that the federal government would bankroll its participation in the championship but only if in the in the words of the president of brazil at the time if it was rigorously white and so um, controlling which 11 players you allowed onto the field was very important um, as a way of presenting a very particular version of brazil and as the 19-teens uh, became the 1920s and the 1930s, and Brazilians realized that all of the teams that they expected to lose to, because they'd been told so often that Europeans were the masters of the game, uh, they, when they played them, either in Brazil itself or, or abroad, uh, they actually beat those teams, and they often beat them very soundly. Uh, the um, team from Sao Paulo called Paulistano Um, went on a uh, long uh, trip to Europe in 1925 uh, and was so dominant against uh, national teams and professional teams that uh, a French journalist called them the kings of football. And there's a monument next to the club to this day that uh, monumentalizes that accomplishment. And when this upper-class team demonstrated that the ethic that it was trying to promote to all Brazilians, which was that Europeans were superior, um, went over and showed that Brazilians were superior, at least in this game, it was very difficult to sustain the exclusivity of the game back home on the national team. And so players of talent were allowed into the team uh, a little bit at a time over the course of the 1920s and 1930s until by the 1930s, some of the leading members of the team and the most heroic members of the team as far as the press were concerned um uh, was concerned were black men often from modest backgrounds but again as i try to uh, show in the chapter their participation was always contingent uh because uh if they stepped out of line uh they could very easily be dropped from the team if they um were to uh perform poorly or get hurt, they were forgotten almost immediately. And, uh, the nationalists who tried to use, uh, football in the 1930s, uh, to promote what they believed was a new, what they said was a new uh, version of Brazil was still very addicted to and sensitive to foreign opinion of Brazil. And so they weren't so different from their predecessors. Um, and, um, they still maintained control over the organization even as they let um, people of color play the game one of those
0: um illuminating moments for me when reading that i think highlights that point perfectly was the tension the regional tension between sao paulo and and rio you know where one is more authentically brazilian than the other because it has fewer immigrants that's
1: right yeah (laughs) And they it and they, just and, they and they to show and they continue to fight out you know which which is the the more Brazilian of the cities which is the more modern which is the more influential and one of the things that I wished I had been able to do with the book was to cover more of Brazil but as I as as the the history of the Seleção shows um, much of Brazilian football history is uh, is lost if you only look at Rio and São Paulo but those two cities also still do dominate uh, not only the narrative of Brazilian football history, but Brazilian football itself. Um, very few teams from outside of that region. So we'll, th- we'll, will include Belo Horizonte as well, um, have ever really um, been terribly successful uh, on the playing field. And in terms of control of the game uh, as shown by who runs the administration who gets onto the field playing for the Seleção, um, those, uh, those people are, are, are either uh, paulistas, people from Sao Paulo, or cariocas, people from Rio de Janeiro, um, or they went through those clubs at some point. So they may have been born in Bahia, but they played for Flamengo. They were born in uh, Paraná, but they played for uh, Corinthians in Sao Paulo. And so those two two team uh, two uh, centers show us a lot, and uh, much of their attempt to try to nationalize the game was um, jeopardized by regionalism.
0: Now I want to move on to chapter four, but I I wish we could spend more time talking about it. But I really want to get onto chapter five and have a good uh, chat about that. Chapter four is your chapter on 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 fandom and respectability and and on gender, and I'm hoping you can give us. A little bit on on the uh, tor- torcedoras um, and the role women played in the construction of Brazilian football because one of the things that you often hear is that is that women had almost no role in Brazilian football because they they were banned right and your book shows that that's not the case
1: right so so one of the things is uh, that uh, that uh, probably the most one of the most influential. Um, books on on Brazilian football in English uh, until recently um, was um, a great book by the sociologist Janet Lever called Soccer Madness, and it was published in 1979. And what she found in in interviewing fans was that um, all of the fans that she defined as strong fans, people who were commit, really committed to the game, uh, were men. And that the women she interviewed either didn't care about the game or were what she called weak fans, meaning that they cared about the game, but they weren't really passionate about it. And that really played into and fit very nicely into a reality, which was that um brazilian women played the game but they played it in many fewer numbers um brazilian women attended uh football matches uh and and cared about football but in in many fewer numbers and i knew that going into the project and so i was really surprised how often uh, women showed up in the story of Brazilian football in the early years, in the documents, um, on the front cover of football magazines. Um, they're just an absolutely constant and ubiquitous presence. And these two things didn't didn't add up for me. Um, if Janet Lever found that Brazilian women in the 1970s didn't care about football, then why were all of the uh, all of the fans? Um, highlighted by the press in the early 20th century, uh, women and some of that I, th- I think had to do uh, very much with uh, a certain uh, sense of condescension uh, that um, that um, women were um, in. Uh, easy um, to write about for, for early sports writers because they could talk about, if they didn't know anything about uh, sports, they could talk about um, uh, a woman's looks, her clothes, her uh, fashionableness, um, and um, they often um, wrote about them in, in condescending ways. Um, but what I realized was that uh, these women who were are called torcedoras um, were absolutely vital to the building of the football community, uh, even though they didn't they often didn't play the game, and even though they very rarely had the opportunity to become members of clubs and they certainly never became um, uh, influential administrators and what I realized was that they helped me understand um, what kind of sports world the uh, administrators and the early sportsmen wanted to create because they were the perfect distillation. Of, their, of the idea of the fan that, uh, that the um, um, early sportsmen wanted to promote, which was a worldly cosmopolitan Brazilian who was interested in foreign things, um, but knew her place, and in this case, knew her place being in, in the stands, um, and took an interest in, uh, in the match uh, that she attended, Um, but that she uh, didn't step on uh, the privileges of wealthy white men. And this was exactly what uh, they were hoping uh, fans would be, respectable people who could help um, justify the game because they were um, kind of paragons of fashionableness. So if the most fashionable women in the city want to go to a match, that must mean that it is respectable and fashionable. But also... uh, the idea that they would show us what fandom is supposed to look like and because they would be demure, uh, everyone should follow suit. And what I realized was that once they were in those new spaces that hadn't been opened for them uh, in the past, um, using another scholar's term, I I identify the football stands as new heterosocial spaces that hadn't existed for Brazilian women in the past uh, or Brazilian men. Uh, new places for people of, of different um, genders uh, to uh, come into contact with one another. And um, once they were there, they exploited those opportunities by creating new athletic opportunities for themselves, usually not with football, but with volleyball, tennis, swimming, et cetera. Um, and also that they were uh, able to create places where it was respectable to be emotional, a respectable to not be a staid, Uh, fan uh, as if you were at some uh, particularly gripping opera, but instead uh, to really show passion in the stands. Uh, And there's plenty of uh, documentary evidence of women fans uh, being um, uh, saying of themselves that they felt uh, out of control because they had been so twisted up in the game. And that's what torcedora means, uh, the twisted one. Um, And what I realized was that um, spectatorship uh, allowed us to see not only a much larger group of people who were involved in the building of the football culture of Brazil, but also both the opportunities that football created, which hadn't existed before, not only for men of color, but also for women, um, but also the limits because they were still, no matter what, um, uh, marginalized from the game uh, right up until the point that they were legally excluded from the game as players in
0: 1941. And that, I mean, the the Douras, I'm butchering that, I'm sure, it it, it does really illuminate this, this issue of passion. And I think that segues us well into the last chapter because if there's anything we know about the beautiful game, the Brazilian game, is that it's a passionate game. Right. So can you talk to us a little bit about how this idea of passionate Brazilian football gets built and then deployed in particular ways, especially um, during the Vargas era?
1: Sure. So the chapter five, which is the last chapter of the book, is about the actual play on the field, moving away from organization or international competitions or ideology or, or the fans, but moving on to the field itself. And the way that the game was uh, imagined to be best played by the original uh, adopters of the game was as they understood uh, Europeans to play the game. And so going back to that concept that I talked about earlier of teamwork, the idea was that each player would know exactly where he was supposed to be on the field and that the ball would move um, by uh, very cerebral passing of the ball from one player to another. And that athleticism was much less important uh, than um, athleticism was much less important uh, than uh, intellect. Uh, and if athleticism came into it at all, it had to do with strength uh, and not necessarily speed, for example. And um, the Brazilian style uh, that most people think of when they think of Brazilian style, the Jogo Bonito, the beautiful game, uh, is associated with something very different than that. Uh, the idea of an imaginative, passionate game uh, in which uh, a player uh, does miraculous things with a ball that we could only imagine um, ourselves doing. Uh, and. Uh, when, those, when, when the first inklings of, of that uh, kind of football appeared, many of the organizers, administrators believed that it was uh, debased, that it shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't be permitted, and it certainly shouldn't be encouraged. Um, and they also believed that what they were seeing was that this imaginative, passionate football was being associated and uh, c- accompanied by another form of passionate football, which was violence. Uh, and there are a litany of, uh, of, of sports writers and administrators who talked about um, passionate football as both undisciplined in terms of a style of play and violent and they conflated those two as, and and they conflated those two uh, styles together and they blamed uh, both of those problems on working people and people of color. Um, but, They were also very successful, these players who played this way. Uh, They were successful in two uh, ways. One, they scored a lot of goals. They had a lot of success on the field. But they're also very popular. And one of the things that a handful of the players talk about is that they knew they had to play for the crowd in order to uh, maintain their, uh, their space on a team, on a field. Um, they understood themselves to be um, playing to a crowd. And therefore some of that imagination um, was kind of built into um, the way that they wanted to play the game, that they were performing passion Uh, to go back to your, your point about passion. they were performing passion, not only because they wanted to, but because they knew that the fans wanted them to. And so I really think of the, the chapter four, which is about fans, and chapter five, which is about, uh, the players, uh, as kind of, um, connected, uh, in that way.
0: And, and I guess, um, one of the best examples of that is this, um, Leonidas, right. That he's kind of the archetypal example of, a, of, a, of a passionate, but of a performance of, of passion. And, all of this somehow relates to the politics of the Vargas regime. I mean, the Vargas regime kind of underlies a lot of the discussion that you have, but he hasn't come up very much in our discussion. So I'm hoping you can expand a little bit on how all of this uh, plays into, or doesn't play into Vargas's particular brand of Brazilian national politics.
1: Sure. So, Uh, Getulio Vargas uh, took power in uh, in a a coup in in 1930, which is often referred to as a revolution. Um, And uh, he had been uh, a machine politician from uh, the southern state uh, of Rio Grande do Sul, um, but he uh, was um, clever at understanding that the moment of the 19 late 1920s and early 1930s uh, was a real opportunity that he could exploit, and he he exploited uh, the opportunity uh, made available to him by the breakdown of the old machine system and uh, the Great Depression, uh, the stock market crash and the beginning of the Great Depression, uh, to uh, um, uh, associate himself with a a form of populism and a form of nationalism that had been growing in Brazil for some years and that had uh, seized on football as an example of how populism and nationalism could work in order to create a Brazil um, that would unite Brazilians, get past the regionalism we talked about earlier, try to um, uh, knit together uh, working people and uh, industrialists, uh, the cities and the countryside. many brazilian uh politicians and and political actors uh feared in the 1920s and the 1930s that the that the country was was coming apart uh, for many of the reasons that uh, many so many other uh developing and developed countries um, uh, faced a lot of tensions having to do with social and regional um and economic uh, pressures during that period and the vargasistas um, um saw football as a way of building a vehicle for their populist nationalism, um, one that would uh, show the Brazil that they hoped to build, which was a Brazil um, of, of... all colors and all places, all regions, but one that was still uh, under the control and the administration and the uh, influence of well-to-do, wealthy, middle-class white men. And so Leonidas da Silva, for example, became for many of them the perfect distillation of their idea because he was successful, having scored so many goals uh, in Brazil and abroad, Um, and because he was black, uh, he could be a symbol of inclusion, but he also needed to know, uh, his place. And so, although he was the most popular player in Brazil, um, he ended up on the wrong side of, um, disputes with, um, figures, um, in his club, which was Flamingo, uh, who were very well connected to the Vargas regime, and so he uh, confronted significant um, um, problems um, that were political in nature, but um, criminalized um, certain of his uh, actions. For example, he hadn't uh, done his military service, which many football players hadn't done, um but when the time came to discipline him because he seemed to be getting too big for uh, the club to handle um, the club was able to call in some favors from the government to put him in jail briefly and then he was transferred to sao paulo to the sao paulo club Um, and so it's a, a really good example that their inclusiveness and their populism only went so far um, many of the Vargistas actually preferred uh, Domingos Tagia, who was Leonidas' uh, immediate um, contemporary, uh, but who they believed was a little bit more disciplined, uh, a little bit less of a celebrity, and a little bit uh, easier to uh, influence. Um, that's not how Domingos saw it, um, although he did often say he wasn't black, he was mulatto, um, playing into some of those um, expectations that brazilians have for how color and, and race works
0: uh, this i i wanted to bring up that last question because i i, I didn't highlight it enough in my discussion uh here but uh, in each chapter everywhere where you can you're dipping deep to to touch on the broader political connections of sport and so i guess when you say you wanted to write sport the right way that's what i think of um, when I'm thinking of people who are writing sport the right way, people who are who are using sport as a as a vehicle for understanding broader political issues, but aren't also taking sports not seriously, but actively engaging with the sports, um, their practices on the field, off the field with the spectators. I, 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 I want to emphasize again how fascinating I thought this book was. And I wanted to ask you, Greg, what's your next project? What can we be looking forward to?
1: well uh it's uh not a a, a work it's not a project uh, about sports um but it it does have to do with a lot of the themes that I was interested in in the in the book uh, having to do with um narrative and memory and performance um, but as I was doing the research for the book, one of the things I realized was that um sports were really important during particular moments uh in Brazilian uh, national life um, and Uh, celebration moments. Um, So, for example, Brazil hosted the 1922 uh, South American Championships uh, in part because that was the year of Brazil's celebration of its centenary of independence. And so I'm uh, working on a project now on the centenary of independence and looking at how Brazilians use the centenary celebrations to construct A version of Brazil that they wanted to project to the world. One of the things they did during that period was uh, host a World's Fair, uh, an international expo. Um, But uh, as with uh, football, um, the uh, project that the uh, planners hoped to uh, organize and uh, control uh, really didn't um, remain in their control. And so The Centenary Celebrations actually became a moment when a lot of conflicting narratives of what it meant to be Brazilian uh, came out. So that, uh, for example, the national team, the Seleção, won the 1922 South American Championships, but the championships were so violent and the diplomacy worked so poorly uh, that there were Brazilian politicians who were recommending that Brazil stop playing international football matches uh, that a lot of the things that the builders of the Republic uh, hoped to make Brazil into um, actually were um, conflicted and uh, made, um, made controversial during this time out of time, this celebration moment. And um, so I'm trying to use that centenary moment as a way to unpack some of these uh, questions that I started to get into in in the book about football having to do with region, uh, with tensions uh, over performance and over narrative and over memory, uh, because they're arguing about what it means to be Brazilian in real time, um, because they're taking time out of their normal lives to think about what, what 100 years of independence means.
0: Hopefully lining up with the bicentenary coming up.
1: Yeah, uh, try to work a little faster this time.
0: <laughs> well, um, uh, thank you very much for those of you who've been listening. We've been speaking with Greg Bocchetti, the author of "The Invention of the Beautiful Game: Football and the Making of Modern Brazil." Greg is a professor of history and he teaches at Transylvania University. Uh, the book invention of the beautiful game is from university press of florida it came out in hardback in 2016 but it's out in paperback this year uh, that that's out in paperback now that's right out in paperback now so now is the time to pick it up i strongly encourage all the listeners to um if you have any interest in in football in brazil and who doesn't have interest in football in brazil um to to pick up a copy of of this book thank you again for joining me Greg.
1: Well, thank you so much, Keith. It's been it's been a real pleasure.
0: You've been listening to New Books in Sport. Uh, this is Keith Rathbone, the host, uh, and I've been coming to you live from Macquarie University. Thank you for listening.